Hi, everyone. This is Kim, your co-host here at Beyond Prisons. I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone that's been listening to the podcast and downloading the show. Uh, We've hit almost 70,000 downloads uh, in a little bit, what, 31 episodes that we've been doing. And that's that's a big deal for us. Uh, we really appreciate the support uh, that we get from folks uh, in terms of, you know, sending us email and letting us know, you know, what the show means to them and what it's doing for them. That said, I'd like to encourage um, those of you that are listening to support us uh, by going to our Patreon page and donating as little as a dollar. That's $12 a year um, to basically help bring you the kind of storytelling, the kind of programming that Brian and I have been uh, busy doing over the last two years. And frankly, this is the work that we want to continue to do. We want to spend most of our time doing this work and we need you to come through for us. Um, We get emails every week from folks telling us what the podcast means. We've received emails from as far away as New Zealand, from places in the Caribbean, um, all over the U.S., uh, and probably other places that I, I'm not recalling off the top of my head. But, you know, we read each and every single email, um, and we thank you. We really do want to say thank you. Um, but we're also a very small, scrappy operation. It's just Brian and I. Brian has a full-time job. I do other things during the day while I don't have a full-time job. Um, I I do spend, my days are full and they're spent doing other things. So in order for us to keep the podcast sustainable, we are asking for your help and we need you to go to our Patreon page again and, you know, donate. Uh, even if all you can give is $1 a month, uh, that's really all we're asking for. Um, we're going to be updating our Patreon uh, in the next month or so, and stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, um, please, you know, continue to send us email, reach out and let us know, you know, if the podcast is helping you. Um if there are topics that you'd like us to cover, uh, there's, we have uh, an editorial calendar of, you know, endless topics that, you know, we would love to cover and we barely scratched the surface uh, over the last, you know, two years. So there's a lot that we want to do with this podcast and we, we do need your help. Um, again, thank you for listening. We appreciate each and every single one of you and um, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, everyone. This is Brian here with another episode of Beyond Prisons. This week, we spoke with Connie Greer about a new policy in Pennsylvania prisons targeting materials brought in by educators, religious practitioners, recreational and therapeutic facilitators, and others. Connie is a mother of twin sons, a career educator, a mentor, and a social justice advocate. She is also the founder of the Respect Alliance, an organization which has, as one of its core tenants, the addressing of justice issues that impact marginalized populations both pre- and post-incarceration. As an educator with 28 years of experience within the K-16 realm, 
Kani has an intimate relationship with the lack of advocacy and harsh discipline policies that lead to the school to prison pipeline and is determined to mitigate and ultimately dismantle said pipeline one student at a time. Connie is an inside-out trained instructor and has taught inside correctional facilities in Philadelphia and Chester. She is actively engaged in several social justice and criminal justice initiatives focused specifically on women, youth, and families, and has been a Greaterford Think Tank member for the past four years. She specializes in supporting marginalized youths and adults most impacted by the system academically and utilizes interactive workshops, speaking engagements, and mentorships to support in the areas of family reunification and advocacy. Before we speak with Connie, I just want to remind you that if you like Beyond Prisons and want to help other people find our show, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore prison and on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyond prisons podcast. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you enjoy our chat with Connie. Here's the episode. Hi, Connie, and um, we'd like to welcome you to Beyond Prisons. We're really happy that you could join us here today uh, to talk about this new uh, Pennsylvania DOC policy on religious, therapeutic, and recreational activities. Uh, before we dive into this conversation, though, uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do in Pennsylvania prisons? Uh, sure, good evening. Thank you for having me. Um, the work that I do inside uh, correctional facilities is varied. Uh, I serve as an inside-out instructor, so I often teach courses inside of correctional facilities that um, are based on bringing together populations that typically don't share space to uh, discuss criminal justice and social justice issues with a focus on redemption and um, societal impact as opposed to uh, punitive methods of uh, dealing. Mm-hmm. with um, folks who make missteps, poor judgments, however you want to categorize individuals who find themselves living with incarceration. Um, I also work with an organization called PA FACT and the FACT Experience. Both of those organizations are focused on family reunification So those organizations are set up to support families on the outside of the wall, remain connected to their loved ones behind the wall for the sake of the children that they share. So um, my work, again, spans from working with families in that arena to actually uh, working as a facilitator of courses. And the third way that I work behind the wall is as a Inside Out Greater Think Tank member. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Think Tank has been in existence since 1997. I've only been a member for four years. And uh, the think tank serves as the uh, training ground, the the think tank of the Inside Out program in terms of deciding 
what type of trainings we'll offer, who will participate in those trainings, and exploring issues around social justice and uh, criminology so that we can have a redemptive impact on society. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like you're doing really um, amazing work. Um, so we brought you on today um, to talk about a memo from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections that we saw uh, that you shared. Um, it's a memo from February 13th, um, and it outlines the policies that they're introducing for bringing materials into the prisons. Could you just summarize, like in your own words, um, what's going on in that memo? So basically, yes. Um, basically, the memo restricts the uh, ability of the volunteer therapeutic um, religious groups who come into the facility, restricts them from uh, bringing in tangible, tangible items. Any items that the groups want to work with on the inside have to be uh, sent electronically to the facility where they will be um, produced, reproduced rather, and um, shared out in that manner. So no longer, according to the memo, no longer can we take in books, paper, pens, things of that nature, things that um, are regular everyday necessities when you're teaching a class, uh, when, you're, when you are um, working collaboratively in a think tank. Um, if I were in a religious organization, you know, a Bible, so things of that nature. Um, those items now have to be um, copied and distributed electronically behind the wall, mm -hmm. according to the memo. And I think it had on there too that, uh, you know, one of the ones that Kim and I were talking about earlier was the original materials um, have to be sent to the security processing center no less than one month from the date that you're going to use them. Um, is That's one of them too, right? Right. Um, so could you tell us, you know, I, I think one of the main reasons that we wanted to talk to you specifically about this policy was to put it in context so that our listeners can understand why it, this matters and why it's a problem and how it plays out. So could you maybe tell us how this policy would impact, um, you know, your work uh, on the inside and your ability to plan and, and all of that? So I think it not only impacts my work, I think it also uh, impacts families. Um, but um, I guess I could discuss both. Uh, oh, because I know, yeah. that you're, I know that you're aware that um, in September, there was a, a previous memo that came out that really began this whole transition of how mail is received, how books are received, that that type of shift. So this is almost like a second wave mm -hmm. of of what was began in the fall of 2018. Mm -hmm. um, 
so, yeah, so I could talk about, you know, how it impacts both, you know, the work of individuals who teach and collaborate with brothers and sisters behind the wall, but also discuss how it impacts families. In terms of uh, in terms of work, uh, if you are facilitating a course, if you are doing a training, part of the um, course, part of the training, part of the facilitation is going to require you to um, ask your participants to jot down ideas, thoughts, um, and also participants want to jot down ideas and thoughts because it gives them a, a tangible takeaway of their experience, you know, just like, you know, just, just like us writing, you know, writing a letter to someone and um, getting out our thoughts and feelings on paper. It kind of provides a, a, a tangible to the, you know, to the lived experience. So not only will the uh, absence of paper and pens and books and, um, educational items of that nature make it harder to carry the experience with you, which is a part of what you want when you facilitate this type of work. It's mm-hmm. not just supposed to remain inside of the facility. It's supposed to be, you know, brought outside of the facility and spread because the hope is that societal transformation begins when you have transformative experiences. And so having those papers and pens and booklets in, in, inside in order to record your experiences, in order to answer questions, um, we have a, um, when we have workshops, there, you know, are different segments of the workshops where you actually work. There, there are um, parts where you may be asked to, you know, look at a bill, deconstruct this bill, discuss in a group how you think this bill came about. How do mm-hmm. you think this bill could be written better? How do you think this bill um, unjustly impacts segments of society? You know, the list goes on and on. And doing these things in your head obviously would be a challenge. And so having the um, having the ability to jot down your thoughts to help you process is a part of the facilitation. So you can have you can have excellent conversations that you know no one could take away, you know, no one can take away our energy. No one can take away, you know, your passion. Those things will remain. However, when you're facilitating a workshop for a group of individuals who for whom this is their first experience, them being able to have a tangible takeaway of their experience is kind of essential. Not just that. I mean, I'll, I'll just chime in here. Um, you know, as a college professor for almost 20 years and um, class notes matter, right? Allowing people to write things down is a way to process. So it's a pedagogical tool, right? So people right. need to process so that they can, you know, all the learning doesn't happen right in the classroom when you're discussing a topic. So people need those materials when they, you know, um, 
are outside of that space so that they can reflect on that. And uh, it, what this policy basically does, and that, this part is what's interesting to me because this part is not described in that memo. So, you know, getting at the impact of this um, for educators and for, you know, folks inside is, is really, I think, uh, an important uh, conversation to have. Um, but, you know, this really does tie your hands in so many different ways. And it begs the question, you know, what kind of educational program can you really have when there are is nothing that you know the the students can really um it, it, no, students can't write how is it how can we do this you know um how how can we have an educational program where you're not writing things down where the educators can't um have the tools at their disposal that they need in order to conduct the class so here's where the, the, the memo says that you're supposed to send it and have it elect electronically. So I think more of the impact would be on anyone coming up for the anyone coming up for the first time. They you know, they're this is, you know, totally unexpected. They you know, they think they're coming to a class, they're bringing their, you know, they're bringing their items. And then once they, you know, process in, they're told you can't, you know, you can't have these items. If it's if this is a a semester course, then mm -hmm. the you know the professor has the wherewithal to, you know, I would have the wherewithal to send electronically things that I would need on the inside, provided that they would be approved of by, you know, whomever you know, is is looking at them in that manner now, which is a manner that they have not been, you know, scrutinized to previously. Mm -hmm. Previously, mm -hmm. we had to, on a gate memo, we would, you know, list the course, list the items that, you know, we would use, you know, notebooks, pens, whatever, and it would be signed off on, on a gate memo. And then our students, you know, would come back and forth with their, you know, with their books, as long as the um, books fit the um, safety requirements, you know, no no spiral, metal spiral boundings and things of that nature, which, you know, totally, you know, totally reasonable. But in this instance, you have, you know, folks like us conducting workshops, which are like one-time, one-time workshops where um, folks may come prepared with their books or whatever, and they may not have, you know, they may not have access to the information in time. Mm -hmm. Let's say for the next couple of weeks, they may not have access to the information in time. Or there may be something that we want to send to have produced to be ready on the inside that the email doesn't go through. Um, the email is illegible. The, you know, mm -hmm. so we think that technology is the savior of us all, but technology goes awry as well. And sometimes it's easier to have good old fashioned paper books and pen as opposed to, you know, as opposed to depending on, you know, technology. So I'm looking at it more so as 
what about if the system that you're setting up to be the um, the stopgap? What about if it doesn't work? What about you know? What about if I do what I'm supposed to do as the instructor? I send my materials, but the email doesn't go through. Or when I send the material, it's illegible. Mm-hmm. And I come to I come to teach my course ready for my materials to be waiting for me on the other side. And, you know, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So not not only is not having the tangible on the outside to bring inside, not only is that an issue, depending on technology to the extent that technology is now going to be the only way that we can have materials enter the facility, it seems to, you know, it seems to me that it's waiting for a disaster to happen. When I say disaster, I mean an instructional and facilitator, you know, disaster mm-hmm. to yeah. happen. No, no, experienced educators know that there always has to be a plan B. You cannot, yeah. <laughs> you, you have to be ready, you know, anything can happen. And so I'm just thinking ahead to the time when technology fails us, as technology does, what do we do? So we're robbing the the one-time participants of a workshop where, you know, we could be potentially robbing them of a full transformative experience because of this heavy reliance on technology for something heretofore was just put on a gate memo and was able to be, you know, brought in no problem. Yeah, I I think, you know, that's a really good point. Um, Something you touched on earlier, you know, as well that I wanted to get your thoughts on and maybe you could expand on a little bit is this issue of having to send things in so far in advance. And I, um, unlike, unlike both of you, I, I, you know, do not have experience as an educator. Um, but you know, I can imagine that, especially in terms of like, if you're teaching a semester course, let's say, for example, you know, mm-hmm. having to turn things in 30 days in advance, uh, notwithstanding technological issues must make it pretty hard to react to things that come up in the classroom. Right. Um, right. I, I would imagine. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on sort of the obstacles uh, to facilitating a class on that issue of having to turn things in so far in advance. Well, yeah, definitely. I think that um, my experience both, you know, it spans K to 16. So both in, you know, in the K to 12 realm and in higher ed realm. You may have a syllabus or a lesson plan or a unit plan, but that's just a guide. Mm-hmm. It's a guide. It's not a miss. That means that, you know, there you may spend a little bit more time in one area than you plan to. And so that could kind of shift the rest of, you know, the rest of the plan for the rest of the semester, for the next week, you know, you have to be able to go with the flow Mm -hmm. and having to send something so far in advance obviously robs you of the ability to go with the flow it Mm -hmm. it robs you of the ability to be able to um 
be an authentic space, you know, with your students and provide them with everything that, you know, you can to make sure that this experience is the best experience it could be. Flexibility is an important aspect of facilitation. You have a plan, but it's not a missus. It's not a missile. It's mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's a plan. And if things take a little longer, you may spend more time there because you don't want to make the experience truncated and rob someone of the experience of their process. So when you have to send things a month in advance, it kind of robs you of the ability to um, have a purely authentic experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I read that um, memo, I was sitting here like rolling my eyes because I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, there's just <laughs> no way. There are so many times when, you know, right before class, the morning of or something, you know, uh, I would change things up. And it was based on whatever the conversation was that we had before and needed to add something or introduce something else or what have you, right? Or came across something that was relevant um, in that moment that I wanted to share with students. So the idea that, you know, everything is just, what they want is, what uh, what these DOC policies do in effect is basically make it extremely difficult not only for folks who are currently doing you know courses and providing workshops inside but discourages anyone new from wanting to do these things because the obstacles to you know to make this happen are really kind of ridiculous right mm-hmm. not kind of they are ridiculous and the you know you said something earlier that i want to um go back to um regarding the technology and uh you know, again this coincides with you know the the mail policies that you introduced earlier and i guess you know in in a way we should have seen this coming um, because those male policies are draconian by all accounts, uh, and they were not going to be limited or contained just to male, right? So anything else based on, you know, this trumped up nonsense that that they uh, used to implement the policy in the first place. But the other thing that, you know, strikes me about the use of technology in this area specifically is that it's another form of surveillance. So it increases and it expands the carceral state, right? The carceral apparatus in ways mm-hmm. that, you know, really undermine the purpose for most of these programs. So if the stated purpose um, or the intended purpose is, you know, to provide education, to help people re-enter, you know, for transformational purposes and what have you, um, it really pulls the rug out from, you know, folks and says, well, no, actually, that's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to heavily surveil you. We're going to keep a close eye on you. And we're going to make it so damn difficult for anyone who's wanting to come in here that they probably won't want to come in here for, you know, very much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, you know, um, at least how I'm reading the the policy um, as well. Um, 
I'm curious though, uh, you know, in your experience uh, teaching these workshops and, and courses, um, had there ever been, you know, parameters placed on content? Because I think this is another way, these policies are another way to police the content of the courses. I don't think it really has anything to do with the material, you know, the, the tangible a piece of paper let's say, that it's not about the piece of paper, it's about policing content and what gets taught in these courses. So I'm wondering if there were parameters regarding what could be taught, what could be discussed um, in these courses, what could not be discussed. And um, yeah, I don't know if, uh, if you could respond to that. So me personally, I've never experienced any type of censorship in terms of the courses that I've taught or facilitation of workshops. We have not experienced any censorship in that regard. We do have to return in a copy of our syllabus. So everything that we are planning to utilize throughout the semester, they know in advance. So the surveillance aspect is there, but we mm -hmm. I've never received anything back that said you can't you can't use this book, you can't use this article. Mm -hmm. So I personally haven't, but that's not to, you know, speak for everyone's experience. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Brian, do but, you wanna, um, go ahead, the, go ahead. Um, I'm just gonna say, but um, if you take a look at the, um, the policies that were, you know, laid out in the fall, yeah. With the uh, mail and speaking, you know, speaking to the family aspect that I uh, mentioned before, uh, things like, you know, cards and pictures and things that, you know, you want the originals of. Your child yeah. makes you a card or draws you a picture. Exactly. You want the original. You don't want a scanned, you know, photocopy, right? Yeah. And um, you even have parents that are saying, I'm not, you know, they're not sending a a picture, I'm not sending a picture that my child drew to this, you know, warehouse to be, you know, scanned and sent sent in because I don't want my child's picture sent, sitting somewhere being able to be used as some sort of, you know, surveilled data at, mm -hmm. you know, a later, at a later date. So yeah. it, start, it could start to impact the bridge building and relationship building that, you know, could happen between a parent living with incarceration and his or her children and loved ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, when, when those policies were first announced and, um, you know, I have two sons that are currently uh, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and they're in uh, Delaware. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea of these male policies is just <sighs> fucked up. <laughs> I mean, I can't, there's just no <laughs> other way to put it. It's just fucked up. And, you know, it's our podcast. We can curse on here. So it's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not, we're not sponsored by anyone really except ourselves. So, um, you know, <laughs> but, you know, if for, for the very reasons that you pointed out and, you know, it's, 
it's this part of it that makes it so perverse and gross, you know, because if you're looking at this and, you know, in um, my background and training or as a um, policy analyst, you know, and that brings with it, you know, that lens or set of lenses um, in terms of, you know, how we evaluate a particular policy, right? So if we're looking at, you know, whether it's this policy that we're talking about today regarding, you know, therapeutic activities and recreational activities and what have you, or the male policy, which is in essence, you know, this policy is an outgrowth of the male policy, right? So, you know, in case folks are confused um, that that was, you know, that crept into this other area. And I'm not sure that they're actually done, right? But if we're looking at this through this lens of, you know, um, policy analysis, right? The objectives, right? A policy is meant to fix something. What is the fix here? What was the problem in the first place? And what is the fix? I mean, they can't really, if they're suggesting that photocopying, you know, the materials, these uh, educational materials is somehow um, preventing contraband or God knows what else from entering into the facilities. That's a non-problem. That's This is not how contraband enters facilities. And we know this, you know, so I'm wondering if, you know, you've thought about this and I'm sure you have, but, you know, what your thoughts are. Um, regarding what the fix is uh, with this policy? Well, I know that that's, you know, in terms of the stated, the stated fix, that's what the, you know, stated fix is to um, reduce the amount of contraband and also reduce the, um, the incidence of staff members getting sick from, um, alleged drugs being um being like smuggled in on pages and them touching it and and getting sick so um there was you know a statement put out back in the fall that you know several um several DLC staff members were taken ill after handling products and so that was supposed to be the you know the impetus for these overhauling of um overhauling of um policies regarding mail and books and um and now bringing you know bringing in paper paper materials and so, like all yeah go, i'm sorry go ahead no i was just going to say that was you know that's there stated you know that's with that's the rationale behind mm-hmm. it and they're saying that they've seen a reduction, but you have other people who have counter-argued that, you know, you could be seeing a reduction because of uh, psychosomosis, or, you know, this, you know, could have been in someone's head. And so now that you said, oh, okay, we put this in place, I feel safe now. So Mm -hmm. now, you know, now I'm not having an allergic reaction. To something, you know, to something that was not there in the first place. So mm-hmm. it's like they're saying mm-hmm. that the um, they're saying that the incidents have reduced, but other folks, you know, are making the argument 
the incidents are reducing because the incidents were not an issue in the first place. And this is psychosomatic. There were no incidents. so, (laughs) So, so it's like, you know, that's you know you have the two you have the two sides of the uh, the two sides of the argument there. Mm-hmm. I you know I mm-hmm. I don't know like I'm saying I'm I'm more of the belief that people are not smuggling in you know K two on the you know on the pages of books. So right. I just you know right. but you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but we also, I, I, you know, this is where we know from past studies where contraband enters prison mostly through staff, through staff, not through visitors, not through, you know, people, imams and ministers and priests and, you know, educators, that the people who bring in contraband to the prison are the people who work there. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, this whole PADOC urban legend, you know, thing it needs to be thoroughly debunked once and for all. I mean, it's it's really kind of ridiculous that, you know, we're talking about this as if this was an actual thing. Right. Like this was a real problem that they had. This wasn't a real problem that they needed to, quote unquote, fix. Right. That this was something this was contrived and it was made up, you know, and the consequence of this is to to negatively impact pretty much everyone who's attempting to do something positive Mm -hmm. for folks who are on the inside. Right. As well as for the people inside and their families who are on the outside. I don't know. Um, Brian, do you have some thoughts? Because I could just keep going on and on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know. And I have not had coffee, people. So let's just be clear. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think it's important. I think what both of you are saying is dead on. Um, I would add to it just the the details from the mail policy of, you know, this was pushed aggressively by the corrections officers union. Um, it was used to make investments in third-party contractors for the mail. It was used to justify letting the DOC photocopy legal mail, um, you know, and all sorts of other behaviors. And and I think, you know, I think that's really probably what it's about more than, you know, more than contraband. I think there's been, you know, like you said, it's most likely, if anything, psychosomatic. Tons of medical professionals have come out and said that you cannot have that kind of exposure to fentanyl or K2 through your skin. Um, and I agree. I think it's just ludicrous to think that people are smuggling in K2 uh, through book pages. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's really what it is. For me, you know, and as soon as you see sort of like the officers union sort of creep in to these articles, um, it's about pretty much everything else than what they're talking about. And I appreciated, you know, Kim's question um, and sort of comments on the surveillance aspect of it. I know you said that you haven't really um, had any experience with that, but, you know, it is it, it is another way to like have a sort of an intervention of the DOC to look at what it is you plan to do in class and give them, you know, a month uh, to get ahead of it at least. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, just just some rambling thoughts on that. Um, you know, I don't know if you have any any further reaction to that. Uh, you know, one thing that you mentioned too that I was wondering if you could expand upon. Um, you were talking about the impact that a policy like this has on families, um, and I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk about that a little bit more. So I just think that a policy that says um, before you send a letter to your loved one, it's going to go to a central warehouse, states away, be processed, checked, scanned, and then your loved one will receive a scanned copy. It kind of takes away, you already know that, you know, your letter has the, um, you know, has the ability to be read when, you know, when you send it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's just beyond a shadow of a doubt, like just, you know, there's no question. Like it's not, it's, you know, we are reading it and we're scanning it and we're right. saving it. So again, you could write something innocently and it could turn around and become some sort of, you know, evidence number 1.A, you know, and it's, you know, something that you innocently mentioned in, you know, in a letter. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, this type of policy can have a negative impact on family connection, family reunification. Um, I also think that um, in terms of the books, that's major. Um, mm -hmm. They say that, you know, the policy says that, you know, they're um, electronic books, over 8,000 electronic books available, you know, on a tablet. First of all, you have to buy the tablet. So if, you know, if you can't afford a tablet, you don't have access to these electronic books. So mm -hmm. either it's, you know, afford a tablet and then purchase, purchase the books from our, our vendor or you have nothing. Mm -hmm. And so there are books, you know, organizations like um, Books Through Bars mm -hmm. and right. um, Black and Nobel here in uh, Philadelphia, who for um, decades have shipped books to prisons. And, you know, the books are specific to the wants and the needs of the people behind the wall. Not yeah not a um, finite list that's created by an entity that says you have to pick from these, I don't care if it's 100,000, but you have to pick from these 100,000 books because the book that I might want might be 101,000 and you don't yeah. have it on your, your list. Mm -hmm. Or if it's electronic and I don't have a tablet because I can't afford a tablet, then I miss out. And so while we are in while we are living with incarceration, one of the goals is supposed to be to work towards release. You know, use our brains in healthy and stimulating ways, in positive ways, so that, you know, upon release we are sharp. We are, you know, we are ready for action. Um and we are supposed to spend our time while we are living with incarceration in ways that are peaceable, pleasant, 
and community building. Mm-hmm. And what what better way, you know, what better way is there to do that than to, you know, read? And right. you're taking away, you know, something, you know, listen, we all really? know that, you know, there there are places, you know, obviously where people get their degrees. Because yeah. reading, reading is, you know, it's essential. It's, it's, it's an essential pastime. You know, and it should be seen as an essential pastime. And when you put these parameters around how I can access what it is I have to read, it's making something more challenging than it has to be. It's it's it doesn't have it doesn't have to be this hard. It doesn't have to be this hard. So, well, and I wonder. Also, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say you also impacted impoverished or lower socioeconomic families who may be able to, you know, afford a a $10 book, you know, once a month and, you know, and be able to get to Broughton Airy and send, you know, send the book through Black and Nobel, but they can't afford to provide you with a $150 tablet because they just can't spend $150 all in one shot. Mm-hmm. And so if you have to rely on the electronic books that are offered, but you can't, your family can't afford to provide you with a tablet, there's going to be some frustration. And right. again, you know, not having full access to what you want to read is just a, another form of, it's just another punitive measure for no reason. It's, it's, you're punishing, you're punishing right. people for, for wanting to read. And yeah. I, Go ahead, Brian. Do you want to? Well, I was just going to ask, like, I wonder, you know, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm wondering if that, um, that frame for lack of a better term, uh, in terms of like looking at not just how this impacts, uh, prisoners, but their families as well, you know, is there any sort of implication, um, for this newer memo as well. And, and I guess what I'm thinking, just to explain my, my thoughts on it a little bit and to see what, what you have to say about it. Um, you know, if you were talking about educational programs, but we're also talking about therapeutic programs, um, recreational programs, um, you know, like you said, like things that are, are vital to helping people uh, both while they're in prison and also for when they get released eventually. And I'm wondering you know, dampening that work and creating obstacles or, you know, not even just in terms of the content that you're able to bring in uh, and how sort of reactive or fluid it is. But, you know, to the earlier example of, let's say, like a new educator comes in and doesn't know the policy. And so the classes get canceled and and, and sort of that thing. Um, you know, is there any larger implications to that, too, outside of just that, like one class or learning experience or recreation? You know, how do these things reverberate in terms of, um, you know, if somebody's not getting access to the sort of the best or, or even just the, I guess the most adequate um, sort of therapy session or, or religious session um, and that, that impacts the way that they are able to um, deal with the trauma that they're experiencing or have experienced. Um, And then, you know, you have family members on the outside, um, who are then, you know, having to shoulder that weight as well. Uh, you know, I guess that's what I'm thinking. Do you have any, do you feel like that's true at all? Or 
Does that make any sense? Well, I definitely can see how that can occur. I, um, I know that when um, we showed up and were told that, you know, we could not bring our items in, it threw us, it threw us for a loop, you know, yeah. it threw us for a loop, you know, it was, you know, obviously, you know, but why? Because we just brought them in last week. So, you know, when we, when we arrived, you know, we were, you know, greeted with the, um, with the news that, you know, we couldn't bring things in. So we, you know, had to leave things out in the, um, in the waiting area. And uh, we had to, you know, we had our session. It was still an excellent session because, you know, we were determined not to, you know, not to fall prey to, However, not everyone is um, grounded like that. Not everyone mm -hmm. is, you know, able to say, okay, 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 okay. We know that this is a setback, but, you know, we have work to do, so let's do it. Not everyone, you know, it's, it, it's, it could be defeating. It could be, you know, it could be um, deflating. And so, you know, you go in as someone who is, you know, volunteering your time, your resources, your energy, you go in, you know, to, you know, meet with the folks that, you know, you are meeting with in order to, you know, be productive and be effective and, you know, get things done. So it could have gone the way that, it could have felt like the evening was, you know, a wasted, you know, a wasted evening it's only mm -hmm. because of the strength of both the inside and the outside members that it was not. However, I am a realist and just thinking about everybody who has a first time interaction with that, with the new memo in that way, it could, it could be a, a, a defeating long long term impacting situation can I jump in, if you don't mind um yeah because, i mean i i hear you i hear what you're saying and you know it's like i've been I, i've been going in and out of prisons for well over a decade now not just to visit my sons but you know um to see other folks as well and mm -hmm. you know you never know from one week to the next what the hell the policy is going to be. And I say policy and I'm putting that in giant scare quotes as I'm saying that, um, mm -hmm. you know, because most of these things are really arbitrary. And I think that's part of what is, you know, really gets people upset is that it is arbitrary in a lot of ways. Um but, you know, something that you said, you know, um, struck a chord with me and I'm not disagreeing with you, but um, I, I'd like to share something, you know, a, a perhaps different uh, perspective. You know, you said that the class was still a success um, because, you know, uh, you were grounded and other folks were really grounded and, you know, you made it work. But, you know, in my thinking, I'm like, but folks shouldn't have to make it work, right? That the issue is Absolutely. not... You know, the issue is not coming from educators and from other people providing therapeutic services or recreational services or religious services. The, the issue is with the prison itself, 
right? And not calling that into question, particularly around a policy like this, I think is really part of what, you know, one reason why I've stayed silent on social media for a long time, because it's just, if you jump on everything, everything's just going to wear you out. And it does. Um, But also because it, it does feel arbitrary, right? It does feel arbitrary. And there's a real sense amongst most people in the public, including people that have loved ones in prison, Um, All you have to do is sit in a visiting room on any given day and you hear how even loved ones are talking about people in prison, Um, that some people deserve to be there. You know, it tends to be the attitude Um, they view. You know, we have a, a view of idle time in this country as, you know, something that only rich people are entitled to and poor people should never feel like they can have a good time, right? Like poor people are never entitled to having a good time. And we extend that to people in prison as well, right? That no one in prison should ever feel good, that it this is a punitive system. You should always be feeling bad. You should always, you know, be repenting and always thinking about the horrible, you know, the harm that you've done um, or the horrible things that, you know, society says about you. And that somehow is going to make you the better person that society intends to have you, you know, come out the other end. And that's just pure bullshit. Like that is part of, I think, what we need to call into question when we're looking at these policies, right? Is that it's okay for people to pass the time, right? I mean, and let me also add this. I don't understand why in any state, in anywhere in this country, the COs and the COs unions are setting policy for any DOC. That needs to stop. And that needs to be called into question in a radical way, right? So when we look at things like, you know, the tablets, I know that, you know, in Delaware, they they recently got um, the tablets. It's only been implemented, you know, for a few months. But you have to go to a kiosk, you know, and check out the tablet. You only get the tablet for a certain amount of time. Um, you share the tablet with several other, you know, prisoners. Uh, I know it's not that way in Pennsylvania that people can buy their own individual tablets, but there are real reasons why some people can't read a computer screen, right? Like right. there are legitimate reasons why someone would not want to read a, on a computer screen. You know, um, not only the cost of, you know, of these things, but also the fact that, you know, as you mentioned it earlier, the censorship, right? Because, yes, you may have a catalog of 8,000 books, but that catalog, I guarantee you, does not include some of the radical political education that they know people are sending in. And that is really part of what they're trying to disrupt, that they're going to, you know, sell you bullshit books that you buy at the Staples checkout line on, you know, and are like, have nothing really real to say, but they know that that's all that you're going to have access to. And therefore that's what people are going to pay for, you know? And it's like, there's so many different layers to, to this whole thing. I don't even have a question there, Connie. I just, you know, needed to get that off my chest. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
No, sometimes you got to do that. You know, <laughs> sometimes no, you just got to let it out. Oh, um, so frustrating. I'm just looking through our questions here. Um, we've hit a lot of this. Um, I mean, Connie, is there anything, you know, that we haven't touched on yet today? You know, I know that, you know, you've had some time with this memo and, and like been thinking about it. You know, is there anything else that's come to your mind that we haven't talked about, about its significance and, you know, its implications and, and that sort of aspect of it? No, I mean, I really haven't. I mean, because I haven't had a lot of time with it because my first, my first experience with it was just last week, just, mm -hmm. you know, last wow. Wednesday. That was, that was, that was when we, you know, we went in and, you know, we couldn't take the items in. So okay. was there I any, so there was like no murmurs at all? Like you had, you weren't expecting this no. at all? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. Nope. Wow. So, um, yeah. So, and, you know, we, the uh, interesting thing um, that this raises as well is, you know, because this is connected to Delaware in case folks aren't, um, you know, aware. Delaware um, decided a few months ago that they were going to start um, moving, transferring people from Delaware to uh, Pennsylvania prisons. So, Originally, it was only supposed to be, I think, 300 people. Um, and then they changed that number upwards to 500. And the latest um, that I've heard is that it's going to be around 700 and perhaps even more. So those mm -hmm. are 700 people who are whose families live in Delaware but are now having to deal with PADOC policies, not just these mail policies, but all this other stuff, because there's a misconception um, in, you know, in Delaware that there are more programs and access to programs in Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, now that the news has been covering um, these uh, DOC policies. Um, folks, you know, in Delaware are responding, you know, with um, absolute horror. Um, and families are like, are you kidding me? You know, like I, I speak to a number of families and um, on a regular basis, and they're actually not sure where to begin and how to navigate this system here in Pennsylvania. Um, with the mail policies. I mean, that right there, you know, they they haven't been here long enough to actually become part of any kind of educational or recreational program because they have, um, they have to wait, I think, what, a year or more before they get mm -hmm. transferred to wherever it is that they're going to be for, you know, the next few years. So there's, mm -hmm. this is a really complicated um interesting issue and a policy that uh, is rever reverberating, I can say that, um, <laughs> throughout, you know, uh, this region. And um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have thoughts in terms of what we can do um, on the outside to resist and disrupt and perhaps, um, you know, change the, change these policies? Because I don't, I don't think that, uh, simply accommodating to DOC demands when they're outrageous. What, simply accommodating to DOC demands anywhere is just outrageous for us because we're an abolitionist podcast. That said, right. you know, right. <laughs> how do we how do we resist and disrupt and you know perhaps change this policy um, 
so that people can get the materials that they need, so that the courses can be taught in ways that actually cohere with, you know, sound pedag- pedagogical methods, I mean, and approaches. I mean, it, none of this, COs are not the people and prison officials are not people who should be meddling in education. I, it's just like, stay in your lane applies in this case. Well, I mean, I think ultimately the best way to resist and disrupt is not to let it go away, to keep it in the forefront, to not, you know, because in my opinion, there was a bit of a lull. Mm. We, you know, this the, the first wave came out in September. Everyone, you know, was up in arms, you know, very, you know, upset. But then it kind of died down a bit. It, yeah. you know, it. It it it, it kind of got quiet, and now this you know second piece, which may not even get you know get to the attention of the masses because it's specifically you know focused on folks that come in to you know work with folks living with incarceration as opposed to the general public. Mm-hmm. So. What I'm saying is I think that the best way to uh, resist and um, disrupt is to keep it in the forefront, to keep talking about it, Um, you know, outside of the, you know, writing letters and making calls, like being public, being public about these things, Mm -hmm. using, you know, using your platforms to the best of your ability to keep them in the forefront, because when things go quiet, that's Typically, when you see something else, you know, something else Mm -hmm. added. Yeah, Yeah. I'll say, too, you know, especially with these sort of like, quote unquote, contraband policies, is that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like another reason, uh, a good reason to keep it in the forefront is because they spread to other states. Like one state tries Mm -hmm. it and it kind of acts like a pilot and then you'll start seeing it jump states uh, and, and take on different forms. So. I think you guys, good... you guys remember Animal Farm? How the rules kept changing, like yep. day by day. Yeah. First it was, you know, no no contact with the humans. Then you know, pigs. You know, pigs can't walk on you know two legs except for on Sunday. Like the the rules mm-hmm. start to change, you know, little by little by little because the um the more we are quiet about it and accepting of it, the, you know, more folks will think they can move and get away with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I mean, we, we normalize it when we accept it and we acquiesce to their demands. And what we need to do is what we've been doing here today. And, you know, I really want to thank you for your time and your energy and, you know, your willingness to come on uh, the podcast. And, you know, we have a modest platform. Um, We've, you know, um, our audience uh, is also pretty diverse. Uh, And, you know, hopefully folks out there will hear this and will, you know, help mobilize and uh, offer support in whatever way that they can um, so that we can change these policies and, you know, uh, and do something better. Um, But, you know, I want to say again, thank you from both Brian and I for uh, being here today. And uh, we really appreciate everything that you're doing and, you know, for 
spending your time with us um, over this past hour. Thank you, Connie. No, thank you for having me.